Welcome to Faith in Capital, a show where persons and communities of Christian faith are invited to engage the system of capitalism theologically and ethically, or you might say from a faith perspective. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. Real quick, I want to begin by thanking our first three Patreon supporters, John, Ibrahim, and Chris. Your financial contribution makes this show possible, and I literally would not be able to do this very long without your support. While the show will always be free for those unable to afford it, if you've either personally found this show to be meaningful or think this is something you'd like other Christians and churches to have access to, consider financially supporting Faith and Capital with a buck or two or three a month. I've got lots of plans and ideas for the future, and we'll eventually start interviewing folks who can further help us think about what it might mean to pursue the way of the cross in the context of a globalized capitalist world. Your support is much appreciated. Okay, enough of that. Now for some fun. Today's episode is going to wrap up our Blind Faith series. And just so you know, we've got two fun short series coming up, one on the hidden labor of social reproduction, something we have yet to talk about, and another on the ultimate concern, the greatest commandment of capitalism. But for today, while there is, of course, so much capitalist logic that we've perhaps unknowingly internalized, one belief in particular stuck out to me as a good one to finish on. In the common perspective, the popular assumption that is either unconsciously accepted as natural in the way things are, or is more directly forced upon those who have maybe gotten a little too curious or have even outright doubted, is the belief that there is no other alternative. There is no other alternative to capitalism. There are no alternatives to its theories, values, and primary goal. No alternatives to its class structure, its particular way of assigning employers and employees distinct and different roles. No alternatives to capitalism's relation to the earth. No alternatives to the past and present social and political instability related to the workings of capitalism. Why worry about economics? Why worry about who gets to make the decisions concerning what we produce or how the extra profits will be distributed? Why worry yourself over how banks invest in and divest from projects that directly affect God's beloved creation when there is no other alternative? To start off, I want us to reflect on this bold proclamation as a claim of absolute, incontestable, top-down power. Next, I want us to look at Roman crucifixion, and in particular the crucifixion of Jesus, as a claim that there is no other alternative, a terror-inciting proclamation of sovereign power. Then, we'll talk about the way of the cross as an alternative good news that is in tension with the good news of the status quo. And finally, we'll talk about what it might mean for us to follow Jesus and embody the way of the cross in solidarity. And as you can tell, this episode is going to be heavy on the faith side of faith and capital. Because at the heart of it, as Christians, we are trying to engage capitalism through the lens of our faith. To me, theology is a matter of life and death. 
And so we are analyzing and probing at the system to see if Christianity might have anything to offer our globalized capitalist world that is distinctly different from what mainstream Christianity offers by way of either explicitly normalizing and divinizing capitalism or simply remaining silent. Let's do it. Former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Margaret Thatcher, was well known for constantly broadcasting the world, there is no other alternative. Thatcher was referring to a particular kind of capitalism, though, that of an extreme form of deregulated private capitalism that many refer to as late-stage capitalism. Thatcherism and Reaganomics, both noted by their aggressive privatization of public institutions, their defunding social and welfare programs, their rolling back taxation on mega-corporations and the super-rich, their undermining collective employee power and rights, and their freeing up markets uh, all over the world for the private sector that were previously planned by governments, ushered the world into our present era of neoliberalism. And while you'll hear neoliberal private capitalists today call state capitalists socialist or communist, both capitalists that want less or more government planning and regulation agree that there is no other alternative. Let me say that again. It doesn't matter what side of the big government, small government wars we are subjected to by the media. Whether they are market fundamentalists or Keynesian-leaning planners, capitalism, it is said, is the best we can do, and those who dare try otherwise are deemed not only ridiculous, but dangerous. And what's the punching bag that we always hear being used to sacralize capitalism? The USSR. The Soviet Union, right? The explanatory A plus B equals C equation used to reinforce the belief that there is no other alternative usually goes like this. The USSR did bad things. Plus, the USSR failed, equals socialism is bad, and is inferior to capitalism. It's that simple. There was violence, it collapsed, it's bad. End of conversation. This popular logic drips with the ideology of American and capitalist exceptionalism in two ways. One, it ignores, if not flat-out denies, the devastating violence committed by capitalist countries— especially the global champion of free market private capitalism, the United States of North America. And number two, on top of that, this A plus B equals socialism is bad equation assumes countries individually will their way to economic success or failure. Apparently, there was never any negative relationship with countries outside of itself. No foreign economic and military intervention in the country's socialist experiment since the Russian Revolution in 1917. And while I don't want to talk about socialism today, these ideas need briefly addressed. Number two is, of course, not true. We just aren't supposed to hear about that part of history, especially not about the time when we put American troops on their soil in an attempt to squelch their revolution, something they've never done to us. Even though the Soviet Union failed to democratize the workplace— an important critique of the Soviets' socialist experiment, common among socialists like myself today, their collapse was great PR for the wealthiest elite of the countries who sat at the top of the emerging neoliberal economy, like the U.S. And concerning the exceptionalism of capitalist America, 
consider a few glaring realities. The United States is the longtime champion of free market capitalism, is the only country to have dropped nuclear bombs on human flesh. We are the prison nation, the leader in incarceration of ourselves. We are the country whose military budget is not only the highest in the world, but is greater than the next nine countries combined. Which is why we are also uncontested in our 600 military bases in other countries. You ever wonder why that might be? And our contemporary economic and military might is built upon the history of the ceaseless attempt to exterminate the indigenous peoples living on the land, the wealthiest employers, investors, and lenders wanted. And when we couldn't exterminate them, we opted for assimilation. Two more. What is the uh, American century without the preceding centuries of incredible profit-making produced by enslaved black labor for the benefit of southern white masters and northern white capitalists? And lastly, here's something I learned recently, and you may not have known yourself. We currently colonize the people of Puerto Rico. And by that I mean Congress can literally sell the island of Puerto Rico including the people living on that island, to whomever they please, to another country, to a rich individual or corporation. And the people of Puerto Rico would have no legal voice in the matter. We could sell them whether they wanted to be sold or not. They are our colony. Neither your country nor your labor can be sold by someone else. Theirs can. But hey... The Soviet Union did bad things and they failed, therefore American capitalism is superior. If you want to read a book on the history of the USSR, I'd recommend Richard Wolff and Stephen Resnick's book, Class Theory and History, Capitalism and Communism in the USSR. They don't shy away from the real violence that resulted during this socialist experiment, and they offer some very important critiques. But unlike the mainstream conversation concerning this anti-capitalist experiment, they put it in a historical context, which is crucial if we hope to learn from its failures and its successes, just as we should learn from capitalism's failures and successes. However, we're not talking about socialism or even the many alternatives to capitalism today. What I want to focus on is the claim that there is no other alternative. This absolutism wasn't a conclusion Thatcher came to because of some graphs and spreadsheets. It isn't even just about economics. The proclamation, there is no other alternative, is about power. For Thatcher and Reagan, both leaders of economic and military superpowers, to boast that there is no other alternative to the world in which they happened to be on top of is not a coincidence. What they were saying from their positions of power was that the system of capitalism, the will of the countries who disproportionately benefited from the then increasingly globalized economy, the desires of the emerging transnational elite who looked down on the rest of us from the heights of Wall Street in their corporate skyscrapers, signaled the end of the world, the end of need for human imagination, even the end of God's transformative work. Atheists aren't the ones who claim the death of God. It's neoliberals like Thatcher and Reagan and their multi-millionaire slash billionaire funders who proclaim the end of God's transformative work. 
To boast there is no other alternative is to suggest there is no need for future transformation. Let's not be fooled. It is a claim of absolute power, of total sovereignty. And the losers of this global order are being instructed to bow and kiss their feet. There is no alternative to capitalism's concentration of wealth and power at our places of work, throughout society, throughout the world. There is no alternative to capitalism's prioritization of profit-producing wage labor, right, the labor we do at work, over the unpaid but essential people-making labor performed outside the workplace by families and communities, labor primarily performed by women and disproportionately women of color. There is no alternative to capitalism's tendency to put the financial interests of banks and lenders over communal and global well-being and human flourishing. There is no alternative to capitalism's relentless drive to ceaselessly accumulate more wealth, no matter the cost. However, this is not the first time people have been told there is no other alternative. One way I believe Christians might think about the Roman practice of crucifixion, and in particular the execution of Jesus, is to say that the crucifixion was a claim that there was no other alternative. The crucifixion of Jesus was a display of absolute top-down power, of total sovereignty. It was an attempt to publicly remind Jesus' followers that their God had no power there, and that the same would happen to them if they followed in his footsteps. And as we now know, Jesus would not be the only person of this Jewish and eventually Gentile movement to be crucified. Many others would live lives that found similar ends. There was no alternative to the way things are. Jesus was constantly reminded. There was no alternative to the military repression of Galilee. No alternative to the economic deprivation imposed upon vast numbers of human beings. No alternative to the religious elites bowing to the interests of Caesar. No alternative to the masses of people struggling and suffering while the few ruled over everyone else and lived in great luxury. But Jesus, apparently, didn't get the picture. Because there was something about the life Jesus lived his way of being in the world, that led the local political and religious elite to see him as a threat, to see him as someone whose execution could serve as a reminder to the people who was and was not in power, and that their God had no power there. And the fundamental threat about Jesus' life, I believe, is named for us in the scriptures. More than mere words, the author of Acts referred to it as the way. So, what was this way that Jesus embodied? And how might our remembrance of the life of Jesus refashion and reform our way of being in the world today? In the face of systems and structures that violate the well-being of God's beloved creation, I believe the way of the cross can be thought of as good news. And I don't mean that it's good news that Jesus took some divine punishment that made us even with a violent yet loving God. Nor do I mean that suffering should be applauded as a praiseworthy means of redemption. Rather, the way of the cross 
is good news because Jesus refused to actively support or passively tolerate the systemic violence and the destructive ideologies of the status quo. He was unwilling to normalize it. He incarnated the desires of a life-affirming God. And that is what makes his life, this way, good news for those who do not benefit most from the way things are. The good news of Caesar was built on military might and the labor of millions of dominated and excluded peoples. The good news of Caesar promised poverty and struggle and pain and anxiety for the majority and power and luxury for the few. The good news of Caesar proclaimed, there is no other alternative. There is no need for continual transformation. The world the Romans had built was the best humans could do, and anyone who suggested otherwise would be silenced. The good news of Jesus, on the other hand, right, the way of the cross, was in tension with the good news of Caesar. For us to embody the way of the cross in our lives and in our communities today is to live out the truth that there is an alternative to the hierarchies and exclusions of the status quo, and that God's transformative work is never finished. Take the Gospel of Luke, for example. It's a subversive telling of an alternative faith. When Mary, the mother of Jesus, sings to us about the Lord who brings down the powerful from their thrones and lifts up the lowly, who fills the hungry and sends the rich away empty, we catch a glimpse of an alternative God. When Jesus inaugurates his ministry in Luke by echoing the words of a prophet concerned with justice, liberation, and blessing, we hear the call to pursue an alternative faith. When Jesus calls a bunch of working peoples to give their lives to the transformative, liberating work of God, when he heals and makes friends with social outcasts, when he takes sides with the poor, the mourning, the hungry, and warns the rich, the complacent, and the arrogant, we are reminded that an alternative world is possible. When Jesus critiques the religious authorities for being puppets of the political and economic elite, when he remains true to his God of life while under the weight of Caesar's God of death, Jesus' way of the cross liberates us from the lie that there is no other alternative. The crucifixion of Jesus was an attempt to squelch the people's hope for an alternative world, an alternative way of being in relationship. And it failed. The scriptures are only one witness to the failure of top-down power to ensure the end of alternatives. But the state-sanctioned execution of Jesus, the criminal from Galilee, failed not because individuals decided to individually do something about it, the way of the cross, rather, is something to be imagined in practice and incarnated in community and in solidarity. As a genuine challenge to the present hierarchies of power and status, our collective imagining and relational embodiment of the way of the cross can't just focus on one group's well-being or one group's liberation. As Christians, our vision and our practice should subvert every interlocking system that concentrates wealth and power and should deconstruct every divide-and-conquer ideology that keeps us from seeing our common interests, our common image of God, and the interrelatedness of our different struggles. 
For example, might we imagine a way of the cross that confronts the divide-and-conquer logic of whiteness, and that it manipulatively suggests people racialized as white, who are excluded from the ranks of the 1%, like myself, have more in common with white elites than we do with fellow people of color in similar and worse economic situations? Or how about the divide-and-conquer logic of hypermasculinity, which tells males they should be concerned with their masculinity and with other people's sexuality and gender identity over how capitalism daily governs all our lives? Or how about the divide-and-conquer logic of ethnocentric religio-nationalism, that says impoverished immigrants, or people speaking languages other than English, or persons of other religious traditions, are the causes of our economic, political, and social struggle. Might we come together and collectively envision a way of the cross in solidarity with one another? And to be clear, I don't mean the let's celebrate diversity and all our welcome tropes of liberalism. Joining in radical solidarity requires personal and communal transformation, which means lines have to be drawn, sides need to be taken. Not everyone will be interested in securing the well-being of all, especially those most vulnerable. In his book, uh, Jesus vs. Caesar, Jörg Rieger builds upon his concept of deep solidarity. And deep solidarity, in contrast to all-or-welcome liberalism, has us ask, who might we have common interests with that we had not considered before? What seemingly unlikely allies might need to be made if radical transformation is to happen? It also has us ask, how might our well-being be interconnected and intertwined with the well-being of, say, people of lower economic statuses, people living in other countries, people behind prison bars, the people of Puerto Rico? Might we as Christians re-envision and reincarnate the way of the cross together and for the well-being of everyone? Of course, this stuff needs to be fleshed out, not by one person or by one group, but in all our communities. So I wanted to finish by uh, suggesting three resources I think can help us in our community's dialogue about what deep solidarity might look like as we seek to embody the good news of Jesus in our world that overflows with the good news of Caesar. All right, so three books. The first one, Jesus vs. Caesar, is by Jorg Rieger. It's a great book for churches or for uh, Christians if you just want to read by yourself, but I highly recommend you know grabbing a friend and reading it together. It's got questions at the end of each chapter, very accessible. Uh, I would put that one on your list of reads. The next one is called Mistaken Identity. It's written by Assad Hader. The next two, actually, you can get from Verso Books. But um, Hader in this book does an incredible job at helping us think about the relation between race and class. If you're going to read a book on race this year, I would put that on your list. Uh, and the third book is called Feminism for the 99%. It's by Cynthia Aruza, uh, Nancy Fraser, and Tithi Bhattacharya. Uh, this book really helps us think about feminism in relation to lots of other different issues, things like racism and imperialism and capitalism. It's a great read. It's like 90 pages, so super short, and I highly recommend it. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk soon.